the week of February 18th, 2024, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 648, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In a very rainy Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And out on the street corner with a tin cup in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Why are you out on the street with a tin cup? Hopefully with a harmonica, too. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Well, uh, Amazon has raised the price of Prime. You know, it's three extra bucks a month, and I was willing to accept the ads. But now, they just did this. You think they would have at least done it at the same time. They've now announced, oh, by the way, uh, that three extra bucks, you're going to have to pay that if you want to get a feed that gives you Dolby Vision or Atmos. So they were offering that for free. And now, instead, they've added in ads and... If you want high quality, uh, you can't even get that. You know, you got to pay extra three bucks a month to get no ads and or Dolby Vision and Atmos. So you were telling me off the air. I thought this was ridiculous, but you were explaining off the air that they're sending out a signal to everyone that gives them Dolby Vision and Atmos. And that costs a lot of money. And they probably realized the vast majority of people do not have a wildly expensive setup that involves Dolby Vision or Atmos. Right. And so what they're doing, I mean, it's one thing if you're sending one letter, you know, but when you're sending millions upon millions of bytes through the internet and you have everybody from Comcast to, to uh, local providers in France to local, provi- well, I guess technically we're only talking North America. So really yeah. when you have Spectrum and, and Comcast and all of these local internet providers charging you per packet uh, and charging you for the amount of data you're sending, you go, you know what, let's reduce the amount of data. And then if somebody wants it, they can ask for it and then we'll charge them for it. But don't, well, maybe they're not like Netflix. Maybe they only send out the highest quality signal to everyone. They don't have certain levels of signal that they send out. People don't I don't, I'm sure they do, but I don't well, know how they've, I mean, I know that they're looking to squeeze as much profit from every single service they're offering. And that at, at a mature market, you can't, show a lot of gain in growth by saying, look, we signed another million customers. But what you can do is lower your overhead. And this might be one way for them to lower their overhead. Would you think there's even 5% of households that get Amazon Prime that also have Dolby Vision or Atmos? Would it be 5% or 10% or 1%? How many people pay for that really big fancy setup? I have no idea. And I'm sure that I'll say this, you know, we all have Dolby Atmos in our, you know, you know, Apple AirPods. So if you have those, there's Dolby Atmos and there's certain headphones and headsets where you can have two channels that actually give you a Dolby Atmos-like experience. Uh, that said, true Dolby Atmos, you have to have height speakers. You have to have speakers in your ceiling and speakers above the screen and below the screen. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's not... It's very rare. Inex- yeah, it's, it's not an inexpensive setup if you want it to be done properly. So if you pay $10,000 for your speaker and, and sound system and your, and, your, and your screen, you probably pay the extra three bucks to avoid the ads. Probably, yeah. So they should have just announced it all at the same time. That I agree with. To wait a week and do that. Or what I say they should have done, they should have just quietly removed it since most people wouldn't notice. But instead of charging you extra... Just say, hey, those people are probably going to opt in for no ads anyway. Just say, hey, if you want a Dolby Vision or Atmos feed and you have that capability, opt in. Let us know. And the vast majority of people wouldn't do it because they have no idea what you're talking about. And that's just my thought. But, eh, you know, that's what we're talking about off the air. What are we going to talk about on the air? 
Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're already predicting the total box office for 2024, just like Gower Street Analytics did in January. Why wait until you've seen the movies? I mean, who cares? If, you know, we can we can do that with just numbers. Our predictions for 2025, we also got them. More reggae movies. Peter Tosh, Woo! Lee Scratch Perry, Bunny the Whaler. The harder they come, the harder Yeah, I mean, a making of film about the harder they come. Yeah, like as you just said, bring them on. But seriously, we really can tell you whether the North American box office will, we're going to tell you where it's going to end up. We can really do that. Just check back with, with us in 10 months to find out if we're correct. It's, it's called math, people. All you have to do is the math. And, and Michael <laughs> will explain in just a moment. Uh, it's award season, by the way, in case you were you know, living under a rock. So we'll tell you who scored big at the Annie Awards for animation and at the BAFTAs over in the United Kingdom for films with a posh accent. That's, that's pretty much what those... Uh, that wins over there and we'll tell you what they mean for the oscars yeah we can predict those too because that's how good oppenheimer oppenheimer <laughs> oh michael you've got a you've got a little uh I've got a frog you, in my throat it must yeah, be the radiation yeah. <laughs> oh, low blow uh plus uh we got more fri- firing sadly and more union activity which actually makes sense one kind of goes with the other on inside baseball our guest is sal nunziato of the music blog burning wood to discuss the best albums of the year and the state of music journalism plus sal and michael weigh in on the latest nominees for the rock and roll hall of fame they are not generous between michael and sal i'm surprised there is a rock and roll hall of fame these two old coots on the muppet show th- those those guys on the muppet show they've got nothing on michael and sal trust me You're, they you hate- call this a podcast <laughs> i've seen anyway sorry yeah they hate everything Anyway, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office, where he's just getting back from China. That's right. It was a big weekend at the box office in Asia. My goodness, we're looking at box office from around the world. We're the only outlet that tells you the entire box office for the past seven days, because why ignore four days of the week? What sense does that make? It means a bigger pile of money. China had its new year in uh, February 10th, the Chinese new year, and the Fun continued throughout this weekend, and there'll be a final Lantern Festival on the 16th, uh, uh, coming up soon, uh, on the 26th, is it? Uh, No, February 24th is the Lantern Festival, but the big eight, nine days that went from Saturday to Saturday, that's where the action is. It's the Year of the Dragon, and oh my gosh, the movies have totaled up more than $1 billion at the China box office alone, a Big success story for everybody. The number one movie around the world is YOLO, or You Only Live Once. Uh, That movie made another $290 million. It passed the $400 million mark. It's from the director of the movie Hi Mom, sort of a Back to the Future-y type Chinese movie that Sony has picked up and is now remaking, as we said they should. This film sounds ripe for remake as well. A woman unemployed in her 30s, I think, maybe the 40s, maybe 30s. Her life changes when she wants to lose weight and bumps into a boxing instructor. It all, I see Sandra Bullock. At number two around the world is Pegasus 2, a racing car movie based on a true story. That made another $250 million. That's at $360 million worldwide. It's a sequel to a movie that made a really big 
$255 million. So this one has already outpaced that. It looks like it could double it uh, before all is said and done. By the way, Hi Mom made $840 million. So YOLO was about halfway there already. So $290 million this week for YOLO, $250 million for Pegasus 2, another $150 million for Article 20, the new film from great director Zhang Yimou. That's at $206 million worldwide. And then there's Boonie Bears, a low-budget, at least it used to be, a low-budget animated series spun off from a TV show. For all I know, it was a book and comics and all that stuff, but I know it was a TV show. Now it's a movie series. This is the 10th film in the series. It's Boonie Bear's Time Twist. It's an animated movie, and these have exploded in popularity. The first five or six made about 40 to $60 million. Then they leaped up to $100, $150 million. Now the last one made $220 million. This one is at $208 million and still counting. Wow. So those have really grown in popularity, but have they grown in budget? I don't really know. And if you do, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter.com, which I refuse to call X. Uh, and at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're also on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find us there. That's right. What, what do you say if you watch the old Speed Racer TV series? Instead of Racer X, do you say Racer Twitter? Anyway, um, so no, box no. office around the world, uh, big, big movies in China. If you just add up the, the weekly totals, that's $500, $800 million from the last seven days alone, over $800 million from those top four movies. And we have others to get to. The rest of the world was talking about the new musical biopic, Bob Marley, One Love. The critics were not thrilled with it, but audiences really embraced the film. It made $75 million in its worldwide debut. Uh, it only cost about $70 million to make, so this movie is off to a great start. It's going to have very good legs, and exhibitors love this movie. They love Bob Marley One Love because popcorn sales, I imagine, are through the roof. Hey, lighten up a spliff. <laughs> you know, people are like, I, got oh, I, I was like, I don't get, how do you know that? That's just like the weirdest. Uh, okay, Madam oh, Webb no, is sort of the polar opposite. Critics really hated Madam Webb. Bob Marley did not get great reviews, but Madam Webb got just trashed by the critics. Audiences felt the same. They really did not like Madam Webb. Uh, but it opened to $52 million worldwide. But from all the trends, you can see this one is falling off a cliff, whereas Bob Marley One Love is certainly going to triple its opening week but money and uh, be a good success story. How big? We will find out soon. And if you're getting into Bob Marley, listen to the album Legend or listen to the greatest hits compilation, Natural Mystic. Natural Mystic is... The music that he is recording, uh, uh, that's sort of the time period the movie focuses on. So that will prep you perfectly for it. Back to the charts. Migration, the Universal animated film, made another 20 million bucks. That's at $250 million worldwide. The Return of the Romantic Comedy is continuing with Anyone But You. Another $20 million this week. It's at $190 million worldwide. It only cost $25 million to make. I can't even do the multiple. That's eight times its budget. Good heavens. Wonka finally and officially passed the $600 million mark just as Dune Part 2 is looming on the horizon. So that's cool to see for Timothy Chalamet. That made another $17 million this week, as did Argyle. Not doing well. 
That's at $77 million worldwide and joining Madam Web in the flop category. Uh, Haikyuu, the movie, Decisive Battle at Garbage Dump. Some of these animated movies have crazy, crazy titles. This one opened in China, I believe, to about $15 million. Uh, Poor Things, the Oscar hopeful, mm, uh, which did triumph at the BAFTAs with some key awards. Emma Stone stars in it. Uh, She's got a new BAFTA award for Best Actress. That movie made $12 million this week. It's at $93 million and counting. A very good success story, and that's great to see because they took a gamble on this one. $35 million might not sound like a lot, but for a director with very low grosses, this was a real roll of the dice, and it paid off. Jason Statham's new action film, The Beekeeper, that's about to hit $150 million worldwide, but I don't know the budget. I've looked everywhere. It looks on the lower end, but I don't really know. Not every film in China was a success story. The Chinese Emperor, starring Andy Lau, that made another $4 million this week. It's at $12 million and counting. Uh, Mean Girls, the musical version, passed the $100 million mark. Lisa Frankenstein, uh, sort of a poor things idea. Uh, This movie, uh, not going to match that film or Mean Girls in the success category. That made another $4 million this week, but it's still hoping to break the $10 million mark. And here, finally, is one of the big success stories of the week. I really want to talk about this. The Chosen, season four. I did not realize this. For the last two weeks, we were talking about season four, episodes one to three that they released in movie theaters. Their plan is to release the entire season in movie theaters for two weeks. You get one to three, then you get four to six this week and next week, and then more episodes after that. So they are releasing the whole season in movie theaters and fans are showing up. Uh, The first uh, two weeks, the episodes one to three made $12 million. Now they've released episodes four to six. You pay money, you go to a movie theater. You've already sort of a crowdfunded show, so you're paying twice. It made another $4 million this week. This is a TV show people will be able to see online. They've paid $16 million so far. I don't know where it ends up. This is way beyond what Game of Thrones made when they put some episodes up on TV. This is uncharted territory in terms of a TV show that's going to be available in your homes, but you can pay to see it first in a theater and it's really paying off. I I think exhibitors must love this movie too. Well, you mean, uh, you know, the the series. series, Yeah, not movie. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, they do. I mean, it's, you know, anything that's going to bring audiences in during a time when audiences aren't generally there, that's essentially that the first quarter of this year. Yeah. I have two more movies to talk about. You can look at our chart, which is much uh, more complete than what we're covering. Two more things of interest. One is an action flick called Land of Bad. It stars Russell Crowe and Liam Hemsworth. It opened up to a pretty bad $2 million, but its budget is $18 million. How can the budget for a movie with Russell Crowe and Liam Hemsworth, are they all friends with the writer and the director or something? What's going on here? There must be some story behind that. Well, I don't know uh, what the story is, but $18 million, an independent film, that's about right. I mean, you know, no, you an action do- film starring Russell Crowe and it's how an much action in it. Film. But it's not, a, I mean, it's not a domestic drama. It stars Russell Crowe and Liam Hemsworth, two big stars. This, it's, not, it's not a quiet drama about <laughs> Russell Crowe. Oh, my God. Anyway, you're just trying to drive me nuts. Finally, the Oscar-nominated shorts, they get released in theaters every year. And the Mojo chart just lists the documentary shorts. 
They do not list the live action or animated shorts, which I assume would be more popular. But if you go to Box Office Mojo, you will see 2024 Oscar-nominated documentary shorts grossing $765,000 this week, uh, which is great. That's good to I, see. I have the other ones uh, grossing 951. I have to find out what the source is on that, but I, I read that last night somewhere and I was like, oh. Why okay. are they not listed? That's so weird. I have no idea because yeah. because the people who distribute those are, the way that Box Office Mojo and a lot of these companies get their information is the distributors will call them and say, here's how much. It's kind of like a game of chicken. Who's going to go first? Uh, right. And I, I don't know that... Uh, that there has been that that whoever is releasing the the distributor releasing those shorts calls short everybody. TV or something a short TV yeah. but why in God's name would you want to keep it a secret? I mean the documentary shorts are at number twelve on the charts, which means the live action or animated could have been if that's one it's two different programs. Ah, here we go. Ways. Here it is. It's it's Comscore Short TV Reports Shorts TV. That's the name of the company. Twenty twenty four Oscar nominated short films in three hundred and seventy five locations had an estimated three day total of seven hundred and sixty five million dollars and an estimated four day total of nine hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. Did I say million? That's all. That's million. all three combined. There's three different programs that are feature length. There is the documentary, the live action, and the animated. You have to pay a ticket for each of them. Is that the, the total for all three of them combined? Yeah, it must be, yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's stupid because, A, they've got it listed as just documentary on the thing, but they should combine the totals all together. They would have been in the uh, t maybe top 12. They're at number 14 right now. But anyway, the point is two things. One, I'm glad you cleared that up. And two... Uh, I'm glad they're in theaters. That's great. But if anything should be available on demand before Oscar night, it is the packages of animated live action and documentary shorts. Sure, show them in theaters if you can, but why in God's name can you not go online and rent them? I mean, this is when people care. You know, like this is the time of year. This is the only time when people are going to pay money to see a package of live action shorts, right? You know, yeah, I don't doesn't think, happen I mean, you've got a you've got a month long opportunity to make money and get them seen as widely as possible. I don't know why I'm looking for them and can't find them online. If I've made a mistake, let me know. But I'm looking at Shorts TV and it looks like all you have to do is pay money to go see me in a theater. Some of them are available individually, like uh, the Henry Sugar short um, from uh, uh, Wes Anderson. That's available on Netflix. Uh, that's like 35, 40 minutes long. I highly recommend it. But in general, uh, that's, an, uh, that's a live action short, I should say. But in general, it seems to be there's no easy way to go rent them online, not even at shortstv.com. So I think it's just bizarre. But what do I know? I do know that Cinemark is weighing in on the plans for 2024 and what the movie year is going to look at. What did they tell us? Well, they said there's going to be fewer films by about 25%, if that's what you're referring to. I mean, they're... Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, they give a that's number, a big, I believe. They, they, their that's total a big difference. Is... 95 wide releases for 2024, yeah. which we all kind of knew. I mean, uh, if you were to be tracking Gower Street Analytics, as I mentioned before, they kind of already did the, these, these numbers. Uh, that's 75% of what the 2017 to 2019 pre-pandemic release, uh, release window release uh, level was. Right, they're releasing 25% uh, fewer movies, which means box office will probably be 25% less. If you look at uh, 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 
the box office is over $11 billion every year. 11.1, 11.3, 11.8, 11.3, 11.0, and 11.0, not in order. But basically over $11 billion every year. So about 11.2 or 3 billion is the average for those last five or six years, which means 25% less than that is about $8.4 billion. You release significantly fewer movies, you're going to have significantly less box office. It's not magic. There's no way to magically stay level with, the, you know, 2023 when you release fewer, it's fewer movies than last year. This is because I mean, what, really, what they're what they're seeing is that the level, uh, well, except for Marvel movies, the level is coming in at the same level. So, in other words, you're getting, the, uh, you know, the same. You know, romantic comedies are still doing the same amount of business, even though there are fewer of them. Uh, action just, films. It doesn't matter about genre. It's overall. If you release ten movies, you're not going to make as much money as if you release a hundred movies. It's just, of course, that's what's going to happen. There will always be surprise hits. There will always be surprise flops. But overall, it averages out. And if you only release ninety five flicks, you're going to make X amount of dollars given the current box office situation. So that's what we're looking at. By the end of the year, we will have grossed more than eight billion dollars, and people will yell and scream that. You know, box office has fallen off a cliff and nobody cares about movies anymore. And the simple fact is just that they released a lot fewer movies than 2023 and the salad days of 2015 to 2019. So if they get back up to 100 movies wide releases, you're going to see box office go back to $11 billion. That's, that's my prediction. But one thing is clear, movie attendance isn't quite doing it. They keep raising ticket prices, and that's a dangerous thing to do. If you look at movie attendance historically, in the 40s, when everybody went to the movie every week, the population was a lot smaller, but they sold about 78 million tickets a week. And that went on a downward slide, thanks to TV and a million other things. It bottomed out in the early 70s to about 15 million tickets sold every week. Now we're at about an average of about 23 million tickets were sold last, you know, in 2019, one of the best years of all time for box office. But that's not quite keeping pace with inflation, which is something I've always had. Our population has increased 70% since 1971. Our box office has only gone up 50% in terms of ticket sales. So when they're making bigger box office and the grocers are keeping place, that's only because they're raising ticket prices. And that's not a good thing to do long term. You'd much rather have lower tickets and more ticket sales, even if you end up with the same amount of money, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, you would, you certainly want the habit of movie going to grow. And I think right now, all of these uh, exhibitors are just trying to make as much money as they can uh, with the people that are coming to the movies because they f figure nobody's coming back. So we may as well. Uh, but they are coming money. back. We just we just established people. We had a good year last year. The box office was right where you would expect based on the number of movies released. In 2024, they're going to release a lot fewer movies, so box office is going to go down. People are back to the movies. Oppenheimer, Barbie, they'll go see anyone but you. You just have to show the movies to see. If you that, don't release I agree movies, with. nobody will go. But they, people are back at the movies. People are ready to go to the movies. There just aren't as many movies being released. And there's going to be a lot fewer in 2024. So anyone saying, oh, people don't want to go to the movies. It's all over. It's like, no, you're not releasing enough movies. There's more demand that you're not meeting. You never know what's going to be a hit or a flop, but you got to actually release movies or there's nothing to see. Every year uh, recently, uh, in December and then 
at early January, you hear, oh, this year is going to be horrible. 2022 is going to be horrible. 2023 is going to be, it's just going to be so down. Everything's, oh my, woe is me. We're not even going to make $7 billion. Cut to December where 2023 brought in over $9 billion. So there's always a movie that outperforms and helps, you know, right now, I think you, you put us at $8.4 billion roughly, if, if uh, somewhere around there, I would not be shocked if we hit $9 billion. No, but exact no, because we're way down in the numbers of movies that came out in 2023. You can't magically generate box. There's always unexpected hits and flops, but it all averages out, baby. You know, they don't suddenly make a million crappy movies or a million billion dollar hits. It averages out. And then when there's significantly fewer movies, you are going to have significantly less box office. So we're going to be down from 2023. We're not going to match 2023 because the number of releases is falling off a cliff because of the strike and this and that and all the COVID and all these other reasons. When there's a lot fewer movies, you just can't make the same box office. You might get a little lucky and get close to 9 billion, but it's still going to be nowhere near that 11 billion. But it's only a reflection of the number of movies they're releasing, not a reflection of people's desire to go to the films. And it's true, ticket sales are down and all that, but there is also the fact that movies are much more valuable because you can watch them on demand, you can rent them, you can stream them, you can own them. So there's a huge home market that did not exist in the 1970s. So the overall success and grosses coming from movies is much higher than it was in the 70s. So there may be a decrease in ticket sales. We may not be keeping pace with population, but we people are certainly keeping up the habit of loving the movies. That's why we love the movies and we love awards season. Oh, did did somebody win an award? Uh, let me guess. I was think it, so. Uh, was it Christopher Nolan? Uh, because I think well, I don't point. know. Let's. I don't want to. I'm a little animated today, but I would first prefer to talk about the Annie Awards. Well, Annie was a Broadway musical uh, produced. Oh, you mean the ones oh, that are given out for come out tomorrow? Yeah, the, these are the ones. Not those, though. I don't know why you would be singing no. that song when we're talking about animation awards. Good grief! Uh, oh. The Annie Awards are handed out every year to to uh, you know films, uh, a- a- animated films. So, which one? Which films won this year's animation awards from those that track and follow it? The animators themselves at the Annie Awards. That's right. Well, there's two big movies that I really love, though I haven't seen a number of others that I need to check out, but I loved Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and I love The Boy and the Heron. I'd be happy if either one snagged the top prize, but it was Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse that won seven awards, including Best Film. Uh, So that's cool to see. And if you've got your Oscar shortlist, I don't know how predictive the Annie Awards are, but at least the people who love animated shorts, they chose as their top animated short, War is Over. Inspired by the music of John and Yoko. You know what? It's John Lennon and Yoko Ono. It's calling for peace. And they thought it was a really good animated short. The people who love animation, not a bad one to lay your money down on. I would say that. And I haven't watched this TV show, but the Best Series Award, one of them for Best TV Media Mature, so it's not like Bluey, it's Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix. Have you watched that show yet? I have not. I haven't really turned in... uh... Yeah, I haven't turned on Netflix in a while. Well, maybe you should uh, k- k- delete it from your list. But I love award shows. What happened at the BAFTA Awards? 
Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer. It really swept the awards. Uh, famously, uh, director Christopher Nolan had not won a top BAFTA award yet for film or director. Really can't believe he didn't win with Dunkirk, at <laughs> least picture or director. But anyway, Oppenheimer won big. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for uh, Killian Murphy, and Best Supporting Actor for Robert Downey Jr. Uh, it really was a big, big player at the BAFTAs. Emma Stone won Best Actress for Poor Things. She really did give a great performance. And Divine Joy Randolph won Best Supporting Actress for The Holdovers. And then the British film, but it's in German, The Zone of Interest about uh, the Nazi death camps and the family living right outside them, that won Best Non-English Language Film. Uh, 20 Days in Mariupol won Best Documentary. Hey, my group, the Iras, they're just adding the category of best casting. We're, I'm trying to get everybody to do that. The Oscars are adding it in two years. The BAFTAs have it, and their choice is a good one, I think, the holdovers. They named that as best casting. And finally, in that fight between Spider-Man and Across the Spider-Verse and the Boy and the Heron, Miyazaki came out on top. The BAFTAs named The Boy and the Heron the best animated film. Is there any suspense left for picture and director at the Academy Awards? Are we going to pretend? No, uh, I'm not pretending. I know that some years it's you never want to peak too early, and then you know where where all of a sudden you're you're in first place. Everybody's like, "Oh, you're a shoe in for best. You're going to win Boring. the best picture thing." It's like you're like it's November, okay, <laughs> which means you're you're likely Cut not me going to some be the slack. <laughs> yeah, um, but in this this year, I mean, let's face it, it's it's going to be Oppenheimer. Here, the guy made a successful three hour movie about a historical event. It was a good film. It was talk a three hour talking film about physics. It, it it's it's a shoo in. I would be shocked right. if something came from behind and beat it. Yeah, it's 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 not gonna happen for picture or director, I don't think, but you never know. Of course that's why you have to tune in. Um, some people have a lot of times on their hand. They can tune in because they lost their job. Paramount Global fired eight hundred staffers in the US alone. With more firings to come worldwide, they have about 24,500 people, or, or they did. Uh, so now it's 23,700, I guess. So that's about 3% of their total global workforce. You know, you think, oh, 3%. That's a lot. 800 people, you think, oh, there's millions of people out of it. 800 people is a lot of people, especially when you're talking about week after week, the firings in the entertainment business, the firings in the video game industry, the firings at streamers, the firings at studios. It's, uh, it's getting tough out there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, certainly Paramount is trying to reverse a slide that has been going on for some time. Lucas Shaw wrote a, a very good piece about that uh, in uh, Bloomberg. But, uh, you know, it's somebody bias. Uh, this is not additive. Yeah, basically somebody bias. They're trying. They're trying to sell their. I, I just don't see how this is additive. And additive means that it doesn't help them long term. It's just something to to cut. To, Correct. To yeah, it's like payroll. you're 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 cutting costs. Yeah, it's not like you're adding another Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, you're 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 cutting things. You're not adding things. And we had no reason to believe they were bloated in their payroll. We had no reason no, to believe these 800 cutting. staffers weren't doing good work, right? It's like, yeah, you know, you're just trying to make it look leaner and slimmer, but you're going to hurt yourself because those people have experience and they know their jobs and they were doing them well, presumably, because you didn't fire them for cause. Well, people do their work and they want to get paid for it. Off-Broadway is really, really hard. It's hard to make it in streaming, like Paramount knows. It's hard to make it off-Broadway. 
But the crew members are like, yeah, I know, you know, but we still deserve decent pay. That's why the crew on the off-Broadway hit show Titanic have voted to unionize. And there's also been membership uh, movement at Disneyland. Cast members, that is employees at Disneyland, they want to unionize with Actors' Equity. There are about 1,700 people who perform as characters. You know, they wear the costumes and they, they march and they cheer at parades or they do meet and greets or appear as characters in restaurant settings. And they have indicated they want to join Actors' Equity. This is at the Disneyland world. This is because performers in shows at Disney World and Disneyland, they're already repped by Equity since 1990. The character workers at Disney World are already with the Teamsters, but for some reason, uh, the cast members in Disneyland, it's a better fit for Actors' Equity as well. Who knows why? But they're like, please let us join a union. Disney, they're not your enemies. Just accept it, encourage it, and let it happen. Has any company ever said, fine, good, great, let's do it? I mean, they should. They should be like, sure, you can join a union. Of course you can. (laughs) They should, but they don't. But- Disney's trying to make money with streaming, just like everybody else. They're like, we lost less money last quarter, right? So they're cutting people and they're cutting staff and they're combining things. But streaming, people are watching it. Oppenheimer, for example, you can watch that on Peacock or you can rent it. Uh, but you, if you have Peacock already, you can stream it there. And uh, we're looking about a month behind. Mid-January, a lot of shows were firing on all cylinders. Seven different properties hit at least 1 billion minutes of viewing. This is according to Nielsen, and as always, we have the charts every week, and it's just looking at TV shows that were streamed via a smart TV. And it's only about six or seven different services that they cover, like Amazon Prime, Apple, Disney+, HBO Max, Hulu, Netflix, Peacock, Pluto, and Tubi. All the stuff I watch on my laptop, like last night I watched Showing Up, uh, the uh, Kelly Reichardt movie, that doesn't count. They didn't track that. If you watch something on your phone, it's not tracked. It's U.S. only. It's not even Canada. So just keep in mind that we're looking at a sliver of the charts. But when you see this big activity, seven different shows hit one billion minutes or more. That's the first time that's happened. And that's pretty good to see. That means Bluey is a big hit. Reacher on Amazon Prime is a big hit. Reruns of Young Sheldon and Grey's Anatomy. And yes, uh, that's it for the reruns. Uh, But This Is Us almost hit a billion minutes. Why? Show's been around for a while. You can watch it on Hulu. They just were added to the Netflix platform, and that exploded their audience. By the way, two slots below them, Suits. So, yeah, you actually look at the top 10 overall that week. The Big Bang Theory, Suits, NCIS, This Is Us, Grey's Anatomy, and Young Sheldon. People like their TV. It's almost like if you're Netflix, you don't need to make original series at all. Well, they do, and they do. Reacher is at number two. That is a Netflix series, 1.2 billion minutes viewed. Um, It's very important for them to have their own property. Otherwise, they'd be over a barrel because they'd be at the mercy of everybody else. They can take them or leave them. They want good, you know, people know they can benefit from having on Netflix, but Netflix can also say, yeah, you know, I've got Wednesday and I've got Reacher and I've got this, that, and Stranger Things coming up. I don't need you. That gives them a better bargaining position, I think. So I think it's a big deal that they make their own content. It was a smart move to make. Well, it's obvious. All my jokes are obviously a big whoop because uh, every time I try and make one about the television and streaming, it goes. Uh, there was a hey. joke. I missed it. I didn't hear it. Yeah, that's part of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. In, a, in any case, it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. Okay, you know, 
you just caught us up on all those ratings news. But here's some big news. The Super Bowl became the most watched telecast in history. Yay, More than Taylor. one. Yeah, well, I don't, uh, yeah, well, maybe. Uh, more than 123 million people tuned in, the most for a regularly scheduled program. It is just shy. We're just shy of how many people listen to this podcast, you know? <laughs> Thank, thankfully. If you subtract 123 million of them. Point. So, 122.999,000. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're the one. Uh, in any case, uh, that number does not include the moon landings and events carried by all the networks, for example. So yes, it is literally the most number of people watching a telecast in the United States since the moon landing. If you're the no, San no, Francisco- No, 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 it's, there's lots of things higher. It's lots of things, OJ Simpson verdict and other things. It's just a single telecast that's the most watched of all time. It's oh, may okay. not be anywhere yeah. near the moon landings. It's got nothing to do with it. That's separate. Big events that are carried everywhere live do not count. Oh, okay. Well, it's not clear, by the way, if those numbers might rise in, in the days to come, but that silly idea that people will refuse to watch because they might see Taylor Swift? Yeah, not so much. Following the game was the series debut of Tracker, a CBS show in the mold of the vigilante show Reacher. It reached 18 million viewers, but they will return. You know, I, I think, are they going to return next week? I don't know. Of course, HBO once owned Sunday nights, but with the Super Bowl looming, they decided to air the latest episode of True Detective starring Jodie Foster a few days early. I'd say that was smart. Uh, That hasn't actually slowed that show down at all. This this season, True Detective is averaging 12.7 million viewers an episode, the most in the show's history. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, that's a lot going on. Um, it's no big surprise for the Super Bowl. It's always at or near a record high, so that's good to see. Tracker will see if it can hold up to its audience. True Detective. This show, which I've actually never watched, though I'm sure it's a good show, really seemed to have fallen off a cliff creatively. Nobody cared. They bungled it. It seemed like it might die. Uh, they've really brought it back big time. Jodie Foster, great actor, great talent. Uh, They delivered really well with this season, obviously. But what I find fascinating is the factoid. The first four episodes averaged 600,000 viewers on HBO. And then HBO Max brought them 1.2 million viewers that first overnight. So that's 1.8 million viewers watched it when it debuts. Another 11 million people watch it in the days and weeks after that. That's the world we live in today. Nobody feels obliged to show up when you say, all right, Sunday night, 9 p.m., you better be there. They're like, I'll catch it on Tuesday. I'll catch it on Thursday. I'll binge it in a week or two. Uh, that's amazing. 1.8 million growing to 12.7 million viewers an episode. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, certainly the, the creator of the series is very upset that, uh, that this is, you know, that the show went on with, without him. Uh, and the person who, who uh, took over the series is like, look, I love the original series and I'm paying homage to it. I, I, really, like, uh, I really like it and, and it's, it's doing great. The, the critics liked it. So I think, uh, you I'm know. Just talking about, I'm just talking about, not creatively, just the idea of how much we live in an on-demand world now when it comes oh, to yeah, television. Speaking of on-demand, somebody didn't demand that the Hugo Awards do what they did, and we've been covering the fallout from this year's Hugo Awards for several episodes. And the Hugos, by the way, honor 
the best of science fiction and fantasy, especially writing as in novels and short stories, but also movies and TV and fanzines and podcasts and, you know, just basically everything science fiction and fantasy. It's one of the most prestigious awards, certainly in the genre, and rather unique since any fan can become a member and take part in the voting. This year's convention took place in China, and controversy exploded when the required report on voting was released long after the ceremony took place. Major works that made the long list of nominees, notably R.F. Quang's Babel, but also Neil Gaiman's Sandman TV series and more, they mysteriously disappeared and didn't make the short list despite clearly having the support they needed to do so. Censorship! Every week affected... Uh, Every, every work affected uh, seemed to in some way involve content or an artist China might object to in some way. So now the story is coming out and, and the surprising news is that for now, at least for now, this, the investigation is ongoing. It seems to involve self-censorship, meaning that rather than the Chinese government having an official telling the organizers what to do. It was the Hugo Awards themselves seeming to do that. And not local Chinese people, but top editors and administrators in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere, rather than Chinese officials. Out of concern for breaking Chinese laws or simply not being sure what was allowed, these editors, they simply removed the potentially offensive works themselves. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a, a lot to... Just uh, to, to take in, basically, there was a scandal, and it turns out it wasn't some heavy-handed Chinese censor. It was not uh, edit people necessarily with the Hugos, but editors and publishers in the American and Canadian publishing industry who were like, mm, I don't know about the... Uh, that's how fascism and totalitarian governments work. You don't have to give out specific rules about what's allowed and not allowed. You just create a climate of fear and let people not be sure of what they can do, and they will start censoring themselves. And that's exactly what happened here. Uh, you can see it in Florida. There was a school recently. The new rules are so unclear for librarians and teachers. Nobody really wants to go to jail. One school sent out a permission slip saying, uh, we'd like permission to have your children in middle grade read a book by an African-American. I mean, it wasn't a book with, it was like, it's by a black person. Is that okay? And, you know, the governor said, oh, that's Wait a, a second. Joke they, why did they even yeah. have to send that out? That's ridiculous. They, because the laws in Florida, you might feel like you're, be, exactly. Well, the, but the book, you could be the most positive, happy book about, if you mention slavery, that might make a white child feel guilty under the Florida law. And a parent might complain and you might lose your job. And so they're like, we're just going to cover our ass. <laughs> you know, we're just going to send out this form. And the governor said, well, that's ridiculous. But like, it's not. When the laws are vague and you can go to jail or lose your job, people will censor themselves or just do what they need to to make sure then so that's the problem with the hugo awards here it was people censoring themselves that's what it looks like and they need to change the rules in a couple ways and they do that every year they do in postmortem. they're good at tackling issues and making sure it's stronger going forward hopefully they'll do so again number one never allow a country to be a host of the hugo awards that doesn't respect freedom of the past and publishing you can't have it in China or Hungary or Russia or Dubai or a number of other countries because the fans vote where to hold the Hugo Awards. And there were a lot of suspicious votes that came from China. They probably didn't even expect to get it. They were all for like without an address, but they allowed the votes anyway and it ends up being in China. Well, yeah, but <laughs> you can't let it, you can't say North Korea is going to win the Hugo Awards and have it there next year. No. So that's number one. And then you really need more oversight about how they're held and votes are counted and things like that. So it doesn't fall prey to something like this again. 
You know, uh, I just, when you know it's a big deal when you are getting covered in the New York Times for something like this, yeah. uh, like three months after your ceremony, that, yeah. <laughs> that should tell you, oh, we may have messed up here. But I will also say that when the uh, Chinese film industry really began, they, they turned to some of the, the uh, trade bodies in the EU and the US and all of the heads of these trade bodies went over to China and said, look, you need a censorship uh, just like we have in the U.S., we have the MPAA, and now it's the MPA. Uh, they are the ones that oversee kind of rating. You need a rating system so that everybody knows what is what the rules are. Otherwise, you're going to have this problem, and you can see they have this problem. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And by the way, the the there is no there are no rules. Uh, Hollywood still doesn't know what will fly. So, right. That, you know, they, they are self-censoring themselves. Now, there's gold in them in our hills, Michael. Did you know that? No. You know, major studios have been licensing catalog titles to Netflix and others, realizing two or three or four revenue streams are much better than a single one. Exclusive titles? That's fine for high-profile new releases, but doesn't make sense for a lot of evergreen properties. The same fact is dawning on video game companies Xbox just announced it would be making four of its exclusive titles available to other platforms, presumably PlayStation and Nintendo Switch. Naturally, this won't include big new releases like Starfield, which came out in September, or Indiana Jones in the Great Circle, which, you know, hasn't even come out yet, but it will include exclusives that have likely fulfilled their role of drawing customers to Xbox already, not to mention what Xbox calls hidden gems that deserve a wider audience in multiplayer games. I think we can call those hidden gems, maybe they're bombs and they're not, <laughs> not it's as like, successful. Yeah, they're hidden gems. Maybe. Here, take these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big deal or big whoop. I like hidden gems. Our podcast is a hidden gem. That's what I would say. Um, Yes, it's just like a major network saying, you know what? We've gotten all the juice out of these shows. We've syndicated them. We've done everything. Now it's time to put it on Netflix. Uh, putting Sex in the City on Netflix, that helps promote their sequel. You know, when the new season comes out, you got a big video game. You're going to have a sequel to it probably. Once you've gotten all the juice out of it, let other platforms show it. And then when you put out a new one, there'll be an even wider fan base. And some of their games include... Uh, you know, big fan people playing all at once, multiplayer games, that just benefits from having it accessible by the most people possible because you get a lot of fresh faces in there playing the game. So sometimes maybe you want to have an exclusive and never give it away. Netflix isn't syndicating Stranger Things, but other times you say, eh, eventually it makes sense to be that part of the life cycle of a TV show, a movie, and yes, a video game. And I, I don't hear any Halo going to, to PlayStation, which is uh, one of their big titles. Ever? No? Yeah? Okay. Well, no, I don't hear about it, so maybe, maybe they will. I don't know. I mean, at this I point... Know, I know nothing about it. Yeah. At this point, it's one of, their, one of Xbox's big titles, and I think at this point, they have definitely milked that. I mean, they have a TV series about it. Yeah, as the TV show is in season two right now, I believe. Yeah, it's, I think, on Paramount plus if i'm not mistaken it's a it's a halo is available on x it's available on uh uh no just xbox it looks like it says windows mac os x phone i went but yeah it's xbox 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 you're right 
Yeah, you see? So I know a little yeah. something about, about video games. I'm practically a gamer, okay? That's right. That's what they call them, right? Gamers? Gamer? Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last, <laughs> last week, we talked about the new sports streaming platform announced by Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Fox Corp to offer a sports bundle for cord cutters. Now, you might think this next story is about the Department of Justice coming in and saying, we're going to look into this, <laughs> which, by the way, they did do. But that is not what this story is about. Any fears that they, you know, this might lead to less competition and lower bids for sports rights, we'll have to wait a while because ESPN said, we will see your live streaming service and raise you. They just announced a $7.3 billion deal to extend their contract covering the college football playoffs through the 2031-32 season. That's right, the 2031-30, that's like nine years, eight, year, eight nine years. That's $1.3 billion a year, more than double the $608 million they are currently paying. Of course, the college playoffs are expanding to include 12-team playoff games. So they'll, oh no, I guess it's a 12-team playoff, so it's, it'll be six mm-hmm. games, right? Yeah, so there'll be a genuine be playoff for the first games. time. There's more than six games. It's, you know, quarters, semis, finals, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, this is yeah. why uh, I'm not your head coach, by the way. This yes. is because I'd basically be like, woohoo, touchdown. Let's go. We won. People would be like, no, there's four more quarters. Um, <laughs> in, 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 in any case, um, uh, you know, th- this is uh, this is a big deal in my opinion. Um, but hey, at least they're doing the 12 team thing. It's not going to be, uh, you know, four teams that are chosen by a bunch of people behind closed doors. Uh, this is going to be more popular than ever. God help us all. Big deal or big whoop? Big deal. Obviously, it's a big price tag. ESPN, by the way, has the rights to the most Division One college championships. They have about 40 in all, including women's basketball. It's just March Madness handled by CBS and TNT. That's about the only really big one that they don't have the rights to, which is another reason why Disney's um, cut of this new platform is going to be about 50% because they're paying the most money for rights. Now, you know, this could change. Uh, but it is a good example of how they are still competing with each other for properties. You know, they knew they were doing this platform, but they didn't say, hey, maybe we can, you know, lowball. Uh, they still wanted to have this, uh, you know, college deal in the works, and they made it happen. I think it's music to the ears of college football programs, so that's for sure. Oh, see it? Oh, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to get us to move along since our guest has arrived. You want to move us along into inside baseball inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing we'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly how they affect you it's award season so let's circle back to the best albums of the year because you know nothing nothing says let's talk about uh the albums from 2023 then we're practically in Mar- but you know we'll, we'll explain why you know other people they watch the grammys who are always behind but real music lovers check out the music blog burning wood today we're joined by our friend sal nunziato musician in numerous bands over the years recording artist co-owner of the late lamented nycd record store vinyl buyer and seller and creator of the influential and entertaining blog burning wood i would hate to have his business card Do you know how big that business card has to be to fit all those titles and in any case, uh, both he and Michael shared their best albums of the year in the past few weeks. So we'll talk about their picks and then we're going to tackle the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'd like to change the name of that establishment, but we'll get into that. It, it was, you know, they just announced more than a dozen nominees. So Sal and Michael will take place in a lightning round telling us whether those acts, those musicians should be in the hall. 
and why. So Sal, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. But now first, Michael, why, you know, I, I kind of uh, touched on this. Why the heck are we talking about uh, the best albums of 2023 in February of 2024? Or are we trying to copy the Grammys? <laughs> well, first of all, life gets in the way. I wanted to do this earlier. But when you look at the stats of what people are streaming, what they're listening to, the majority of it is considered catalog music. That's anything that came out at least 18 months ago. Uh, but that still covers a ton of music streaming from the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. When I look at my music tastes, I binged on jazz this year and a lot of Ella Fitzgerald, and I'm listening to some blues albums, and I'm always catching up on music from different eras. And that's what a lot of people are doing. And in journalism there's such a mania for what's next what's now what's new that shiny new bauble once a show is debuted they don't ever want to talk about oh what we already discussed it's like no this stuff came out a few months ago it's not old news it's just great music and that's always worth talking about which is why you should go to burning wood not only will you find sal talking about the best new music he likes and linking to uh, videos for the lemon twigs and their new song for example but he'll discuss classic albums that he's re-listening to on vinyl or just stumbled across and decided to give another spin. You'll see his list of the music he plays all day, every day. You'll hear about uh, his picks for the best albums by Todd Rundgren. He'll go through the entire library and tell you where to start and what to do. So there's so much great music and it's just so hard to get a handle on it. That's why Burning Wood is a great place to go to. And that's why it's never too late to talk about the best albums of the year. Well, while we're doing that, I guess, Sal, you know, you've been uh, you know, writing your blog for, I don't even know how long, but this year we saw a number of blogs kind of uh, disappear, uh, Pitchfork being one of them. Uh, and there was a lot of hemming and hawing over the state of music journalism and, you know, why music blogs aren't a thing anymore. How have you found, uh, you know, writing a blog on music, uh, you know, over the years? And where do you think it's where do you think we are in that process? I mean, is, is it do we really have to bemoan the state of music journalism? There's great music journalism. Um, still in print, actually, the, the writers of Mojo, the writers of Uncut magazine. Um, those, that's where I go to when I want to read about something old that was discovered or something new that was discovered. Um, the problem that I have with a lot of these music blogs, uh, Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, um, it, too often it feels like nobody does any research. Um, song titles get mixed up, uh, chron you know, the, the chronology of albums, when they came out, band members, it's as if they get a press release on something, skim over it for a second, and then try to write something. And it, it's, I just can't be, I can't be bothered. It's embarrassing to me when, when, you know, somebody will talk about, you know, dark side of the moon, like they just discovered it. You know, and in some sense, that's what I do on my blog, um, except that the people who read my blog, the, the loyal Burning Wood readers, they know I've already heard Dark Side of the Moon. And so therefore, if I'm bringing something up about Dark Side of the Moon, it isn't just going to be, hey, did you know this was on the charts for 29 years? It's going to be something that hopefully most music lovers haven't read before. And it's also why I stay away from a lot of new artists because um, I don't want to do the research. I don't want to learn about 
um, some new hot so-and-so from England or whatever, because then I have to listen to it. And almost <laughs> always I'm disappointed by what I listen to. And so uh, my, my ex-business partner, um, one thing he once said, and I always think about it, he said, if there's any one good thing about us closing the store is that we don't longer have the burden of needing to listen to new music. <laughs> well, don't worry about those journalists because they've lost their jobs. So there's very well, little well, music journalism left. You know, I, I know you feel bad about that. It, I know. It's never but, it's never a good thing to hear someone lose their job, but they shouldn't have had these jobs in the first place. Right. Well, anyway, the great thing about your blog also is that you're always uh, got albums for sale. There's a link at Bernie Wood, which we'll include on in our notes to vinyl. And that's that's where you make a lot of your living right now. You've got a great fan base on Burning Wood, but it's sales, buying and selling vinyl where you make a living uh how's that going for you right now is anything any well, cool to, new to albums be, to be perfectly honest uh vinyl sales for me and a lot of uh my friends who are record dealers who sell online uh, vinyl sales are down mm -hmm. and uh, just recently on the blog uh um i i mentioned this specifically about a record that i thought was going to fly off the shelf within seconds of listing it it's a it's a deep soul record from the 60s by a woman called betty swan mm -hmm. and it's a record that is just fantastic from top to bottom and it's a record that usually if you could find it in its original form goes for about a hundred bucks sometimes more and i was selling a beautiful reissued copy with great fidelity for twenty dollars and it sat there for for weeks and i believe that if stores, you know, back in the day, record buyers would go into the store if they were soul lovers and rhythm and blues lovers and they'd see a Betty Swan cover. If the cover was striking, they'd pick it up and they'd look at the back and they'd see, oh, look, there's a Smokey Robinson cover. I never heard of this before. I'll take it. You don't have that opportunity selling records online it's just a list with with condition and a price and i think too often people are put off by that which is why my sales are down let's get to the best albums of the year sperling you have a question uh, i do uh what are the best albums of of the year great question Keep no no again. i'm kidding michael michael now no I, let me I, i'm kidding well michael you and sal you you share five albums on on both of your lists uh, and let's be honest, you taught Michael everything he knows about rock and roll. So would you add, now that you've maybe have heard it since it's on your blog, would you add Boy Genius to your list? I know it's a new act, kind of. I mean, they're all older artists that fairly young and new artists. I, uh, I really like the record. Um, there are things about it I don't like. Um, and and it just it has this vibe that a lot of these indie records have um there's a sameness to it um but i liked it more on the second go around um and there are a couple of songs that i just think are, are absolutely stunning the um oh, i can't think of the title right now but it's the one that's so clearly inspired by paul simon do you know, you know the one mm. i'm talking about i do i'd have to look up the title too yeah but 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 yeah, I don't know if I would put it in my in my top ten, but but I did really enjoy it after resisting. And, and Boy Genius well, is the band uh, formed by Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. It's kind of a super group, if you will. 
Right. Absolutely. An indie supergroup. Um, also, uh, Sal's list is just 15 albums, so I'll read them all. The Lemon Twigs is his top album of the year. He's been pushing this band for years, and their new album is Everything Harmony. Uh, he loved it. He's grown to make me love the band as well, and they have a new album on the horizon with already a song or two out that are terrific. So the Lemon yeah, Twigs... coming in May. Er- Everything Harmony, uh, then Krasno Moore Project, Book of Queens, then Iggy Pop, he's not dead yet, Every Loser, The Rolling Stones with Hackney Diamonds, African Head Charge with A Trip to Bulgatonga, Mike Viola with Paul McCarthy, Margaret Glaspie with Echo the Diamond, Sparks, The Girl is Crying in Her Latte, Joe Jackson presents Max Champion in What a Racket, Brad that Melda. is such a good album. I, I, I don't is. mean to interrupt, but what a good album that is. It really is. Brad Meldow with his Beatles album, Your Mother Should Know. Extreme with Six. Lydia Loveless with Nothing's Going to Stand in My Way Again. P. Hux with As Good as Advertised. Lucinda Williams with Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart. And Graham Parker with Last Chance to Learn the Twist. I have five of those albums on my list, mostly thanks to Sal. The Lemon Twigs, The Rolling Stones, African Head Charge, uh, Joe Jackson, and Brad Meldow. So uh, we share those five, but it took me 50 albums to say my favorites of the year. 50 uh, albums? Yeah, I have 50 albums. Sal's like 15, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god that's like a, everything i listened to was great and I, <laughs> I listened to everything on sal's list because he talks about them over the year and i like or loved most of them or appreciated them uh and he definitely turned me onto some albums my favorite album of the year was sufian stevens javelin followed closely by janelle monet's the age of pleasure which sal uh reviewed succinctly in his daily list of uh, what he listens to he now gives a little short you know not even a sentence about it. and that album he said I just don't have the patience for this, <laughs> which, which is great. It's a ta- catch-all review that you could use time and time again. But, you know, that's why we have music. Everybody's got different tastes. And we do share Joe Jackson's album. I would have listened to it on my own, but Sal mentioned it first. I hadn't known it came out. And tell us about this album, Sal. It's such a treat, such a pleasure. Well, I, I bought into it immediately when he released the first single, which I believe was... Um, health and and i can't think of the title i'm sorry I'm, I'm blanking but the point is the first single um i said what is he doing now what 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 the hell is this it, it's <laughs> this dance hall retro very britishy you know it's uh, like a british it's, it's like a british band you know brass band kind of album yeah well it, it's it's what was popular back then in the 20s and, and when i yeah. read about this i had no idea that this was just a creation of of joe jackson he 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 made up the character made up the story and he wrote original songs in the style of 20s british dance hall and knowing that kind of changed my my approach to the record it wasn't you know just- i i I, ha- I have to admit i spent a lot of time searching for other music and the original recordings of max champion it took me at least an hour or two before i realized oh this is totally made up i still don't trust i, I i'm still <laughs> skeptical of it all like i don't trust what i'm reading but but it's without a doubt it's an original joe jackson record and it impressed the hell out of me. I, it, and, it's, and, and it's so much fun to listen to. It's, oh. it's, it's Gilbert and Sullivan. It's, it's, it's like great Broadway and, and it's, it's melodic, you know, it's melodic pop and he, he, he sells it. 
he really can, he sings it well and he sells it well. And I loved it. That's I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, he had a lot of fun creating this persona. They created uh, a whole back history for Max Champion. They made up fake vaudeville playbills with the list of real vaudeville artists and Max Champion mixed in between. Uh, it's not that meta. It's just great fun. You hear it and it's got an old timey vibe, but he sings in a new voice really for the album with a bit of a posh, fake posh accent. And it's just a treat from start to finish. You'll be singing along and I can't wait to see him in concert because I'm hoping he will do not only these songs, but I hope he does some of his other songs in the style of Max Champion. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do, but it's really, it's a lot of yeah, fun. Scream, scream out, uh, stepping out and get thrown out. That's what'll happen <laughs> at a Jackson show. So. Exactly. He, so yet he plays can, it all the time. He plays yeah, it in, almost in, every, in every style. That's true. Acoustically, he's the, his, his live album from the 80s, which is a compilation of various shows, there's four different versions of uh, Is She Really Going Out With Him? An acapella, a acapella. straight version, a jazz version. So, so uh, yeah, he, he'll, I'm sure the show will be great. One thing you don't have on your list are reissues, uh, but I, I, uh, every, I have like four sets of, of albums to get to my 52, and then at the bottom of each, I include a reissue because I never quite know what to do. Like, you've got Ella Fitzgerald's The Great Songbook box set. How does that you know, file in among, you know, new releases. So I just put each one at the bottom of each thing. My top reissue of the year is, of course, The Beatles, 1962 to 66 and 1967 to 70. Those are the red album and the blue album. Uh, they were remastered, remixed, and they added in more songs. These were already double album greatest hits. Who the hell releases two double album greatest hit sets and then can add in a dozen more songs and you still say, not enough, give me more. Uh, I thought it was amazing, and I'd never really listened to them. What did you think of them, Sal? Uh, I never thought anything of the Red and Blue records up until now. Um, I had them when they came out because everybody had them when they came out. You're a Beatles fan, you buy, you buy anything. Um, but what they did, the way they remastered and remixed some of this early stuff was just so stunning. I mean... You think you, I mean, I'm a Beatle fanatic my entire life and I was hearing things I had never heard before. And it, it, it was you know, a listening experience like no other. It, it just really knocked me out. And now I think they're essential. I never thought they were essential because I never felt like if I'm going to listen to the Beatles, I'm going to listen to a Beatles album. You know, I don't necessarily need to hear the hits, whatever the hits are. You know, but but now I I I want to listen to this this new set because it just sounds so good. What do you think of the new uh, the new album or the new song that they created through AI? Where now they, and then, right. now and then. I don't think well, it's not AI. We got to be, be. It's it's Paul McCartney made a mistake and said it was AI, but they're all you know they're walking back on that. It's not AI. It's just the same process that Peter Jackson used for get back to, to extract, you know, certain tracks, clean them up. And, um, and the new song's fine. I mean, you know, it is what it is, you know, I mean, would, would I have rather, you know, it didn't come out. No, I'm glad I heard it. It's probably, uh, I'm not going out of my way to listen to it, you know, but when it's on, I don't turn it off either. It's, 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 it's a sweet, it's a sweet ending if it's the last one. Well, they're all in the they're all in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So take us there, uh, Sperling. 
Okay, well, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they announced 15 nominees, including some acts previously shortlisted and others new to the list. So, Sal, do these acts deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Yes or no? no. And by the way, this list is alphabetical. That's the only reason. Uh, now, and I guess, Michael, you're going to join in and, and afterwards? That's right. or Do you want me to oh. go first or second, Sal, or should we alternate? Whatever you want to do. It's, you could read them off. I'll let you slap me down. <laughs> uh, okay. Mary, J, Mary J. Blige. Oh, go first. <laughs> uh, you want me to go first on this one? I can't think of anyone, anyone less deserving. This is a woman who's, who's had a, a, an unfathomable career. She couldn't hold a, a, no, a tune. She couldn't carry a tune in a backpack. Okay, she is the <laughs> worst R and B singer I have ever heard. Even in the studio, they they won't even use auto tune because like a little button pops up that says "Nope, can't help." Auto tune's not going to work. She's awful, <laughs> and the only reason she's successful is because she's selling this act. Because oh, she means it. So what? I think she is. I think she is seriously the worst R and B singer I've ever heard. Wait till you hear the next one, because I've never really paid attention to Mary J. Blige, so I will just accept that. Let's name the next artist. Talk about not only a bad singer, but wildly influential as well. And, and yet people think she's a great singer. There are some people who would say that when she was younger, she was a great singer, and that name is Mariah Carey. Um, well, no. I mean, I, I'm going to say no to almost everybody on this list. I, and the thing is, I own and enjoy records by almost everyone on this list but but no of course not i think we've we've i don't have a problem with the name i don't have a problem with rock and roll hall of fame a lot of people do okay because they use the words rock and roll to get on other people i don't know why is there hip-hop what that's fine rock and roll hall of fame is the name and you put in people by the original criteria what they've done in music charts hits influence all of that stuff Mariah Carey, she's got a lot of hits, but she's she's a, a melismatic oversinger who's influenced more melismatic oversingers. I don't believe she belongs. She's she's one of the worst influences in 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 music history in terms of singing. She really has destroyed it for like two generations now. Yeah, I think Boys to Men may have started that. Were they before Mariah Carey? Yeah, I think they I don't they think, well maybe, maybe around the same they time were but certainly I think contemporaries. They, Yeah, but yeah, but the answer is no. No Mariah. What about Cher? Do you believe in love? Come on. I thought for a minute because she she could be very likable and then I said and she's a great actress, but what does that have to do with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And I thought about all the hits with Sonny and Cher and how much I love those. Um and even heard solo hits, you know, we're, we're good AM radio hits, but you know, her defense. And I think she said this on, on some show, she said, I was the first one to use auto tune on believe. And I'm like, yeah. that's what you're, that's your defense of getting into the rock and roll hall of fame that you had the first hit using auto tune. I thought that was like it's a really strange way of trying to sell yourself. It's influential. I, I wouldn't mind. I, I wouldn't mind seeing her get in, but I don't really. Be, I'm not going to. You know, I don't think she should. Be. I feel like Cher is rock and roll, 
uh, not necessarily uh, for her recordings, but she is a rock and roll figure, so I won't be upset. But uh, the influence of Sonny and Cher to me seems modest, but they have some great singles, as does she. Right. Now, what would you say about Dave Matthews' band being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? You see what I did there? Because you know, what would you say? See, it's one of their songs. You see how keep I, going, I did keep that? Keep going, keep yeah. um, going. I've never been a fan. I think he's a terrible singer. Uh, I, I don't. I think the band overplays. One of my least, as a drummer, one of my least favorite drummers is his drummer. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I get jam bands. I, I get what jam bands can do. I don't think they're good at it. So I, I, I once that's I, a personal taste. I, yeah, most jam bands are not Grateful Dead. And Grateful Dead isn't always Grateful Dead. But uh, Dave Matthews Band, I once had a friend's wife say, why don't critics like Dave Matthews Band? And I was like, because they're not good? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know yeah. what to say. There were, it's clear there would be a lot fewer people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if we were in charge. <laughs> but anyway, keep going. Eric B. and Rakim. You know, two of my favorite hip-hop records are their first two records. But they only made four records. And the two after that aren't quite as popular as the first two. So I don't really, where's the body of work? Where, you know, maybe they've been influential, you know, to, to other hip hop artists. But I don't know, four records and out seems like a, an odd stretch there. How many did the zombies need? How many did, you know, there are bands that just had one or two records, love, well, you know. Well, okay, well, when Eric and Eric B. and Rakim put out a, a record as influential as Odyssey and Oracle, which is on almost every critic's all-time best list, I mean, there's, you got to weigh things out there. I mean, you know, the Zombies had, you know, how many hit singles, you know? They only had three records, but there were others. There was like, you know, at least a dozen singles that weren't on albums that were all, you know, top 20 or whatever. I, I don't I don't mind that it's just four records. I originally thought only uh, paid in full should be in the hall. You know, there are some people you say, oh, their album should be honored and it will be. It's going to be in there, but maybe not the artists. But they are so uh, widely cited as an influence as one of the great duos of all time in hip hop and so influential. I got sort of won over by the amount of love and respect for what they did. To me, it sort of starts and ends with the first, even the first album and the second album. So right. uh, I can understand that. But again, I won't be upset when they get in as they should. Well, this next act is a real jukebox hero, Foreigner. <laughs> it's like Sperling wants to write for the Grammy Awards. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the band. I've been a fan of the band. Uh, I think their first four records are all fantastic. Um, I don't think that they should be pigeonholed as the band that did I Want to Know What Love Is and Waiting for a Girl Like You. I don't mind either of those songs, by the way. But I think the, the first four records have a, lot to, have a lot to offer. That being said, no, I don't think they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because it's, there's nothing special about it. It's just very good hard rock. That's, that's all it is. And I don't think they really influenced anyone. I think, if anything, they've taken from a lot before them. So, yeah. you know, but they also have the chart hits. And, you know, yeah, they also have, they're also touring with no original members. 
<laughs> I think they'll get in because apparently Jan Wenner was blocking them. He hated them. And so they're going to get in now that Jan has been booted out of the hall uh, just because of their huge success and I guess they're veterans. And you hang around long enough, people love you. I have the same uh, uh, feeling as Sal. Though I will say, I was like 12 years old. My mom and I were in Orlando visiting people while she was working as a tennis umpire. And I had to share a room with this kid who was like 14. He was much older. And he said, do you mind? I, I go to sleep with the radio. Do you mind if I leave it? I'm like, no, I don't mind. Oh, sure. You know, but I never listen to the radio. And he puts on the radio and he's falling asleep. And for the first time, I hear Jukebox Hero and like, there's rain and you're standing outside the stand. I'm like, this is the best song ever. It was very <laughs> exciting when you were 12. If well, I, I got to say. Just, if I could just sneak this in, one of the features that I do on the blog, I haven't done it in a while, but I've, did, I've done about 14 of them. Uh, it's called a deep cut six pack where I, I take a very big you know popular artists that everyone knows and i put together a little mix of six songs that have nothing to do with their hits and i did that with farna and enough people were like hey wow that's right i, I didn't think they were that good oh i love this song i never heard this song before i think the deeper cuts on their records are even better than their hits well, you guys are just cold as ice when it comes to getting letting Farner get into the... Uh... All right, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> so I can't work in another song? Okay, Peter Frampton. I'm a fan. I was a fan of, you know, The Herd. I was a fan of Humble Pie. Um, I love his solo records. Um, for Frampton Comes Alive Alone, he should get in. For the cover of I'm In You, he should not. Um <laughs> But but he's a very likable guy. He's a great guitar player. Um, he's got enough hits under his belt. He's also got a, a big black hole in his career post, you know, I'm in you. You know, and those records are good. They're, they're just, they, they didn't do anything. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm a, I'm a fan. I would love to see him get in. But I don't know if he deserves to be in based on Baby, I Love Your Way. Baby, I Love Your Way. I just don't know. I mean, I would think I would think Frampton comes alive would and is honored in the hall. And I think that's where it probably ends, though. He seems like a nice guy. And as Sal might point out to me, what albums of his have you listened to? Like, not much. So uh, maybe I have a lot of homework to do, but I'm suspecting first, I would not be changed. First record through I'm in you, even I'm in you, I, I, you know, the, the title track. You know, aside, yeah. he's, he's known. He's known now more as a session musician, like bring in Peter Frampton to be a, a you know, your guitar player. David Bowie used him for years that way, uh, especially uh, in the 80s. Um, this next band, I, I think, think, he, I think if they, he only toured with Peter. I think he only toured with Bowie and that, I don't think he's on any Bowie records, but I could check. Actually, you're right. When I say session musician, I do kind of mean more as a touring musician. So you're right. Um, yeah. What about Jane's Addiction? I'll go first on this one. I don't really care about Jane's Addiction at all. Uh, I just have to listen to Nothing Shocking yet again. They have like two albums, basically. Uh, if you talk about their two albums, but unlike Eric B. and Rakeem, I don't think they're that great. But I am about to listen to Nothing Shocking again. I was swayed a little bit by people talking about Lollapalooza and how that really did bring festivals to America permanently and was very influential. People say, oh, they're very influential on the indie scene. I'm like, really? I don't really hear people talking about Jane's Addiction, so I don't get it. But for Lollapalooza alone, if but then you should be in as a festival promoter, not as a musician. So, and that's uh, Perry. I'm a little mixed. Perry, it's not the band. Put yeah, Perry correct. in. It's not, right. 
You know, I'm I'm with yeah. you. I don't I don't I don't get that at all. I don't think they deserve to be put in. Well, I'll tell you, this next group, uh, people would celebrate if they get in, and that is, uh, they'd be <laughs> celebrating, in fact. Uh, cool and the gang. Or should we just like cool in? I don't know. Not the gang. Uh, I think they're two different bands. I think that before MTV, they were a, a, a very hip, very cool, funky jazz band that that, you know, influenced a lot of people. And then they became a, you know, pop R&B MTV success and had a ton of hits that way. Um, for those two careers alone, uh, I would say I don't mind if they get in. I would agree. I don't mind if they get in, but I, cause uh, I, I do think the earlier stuff like jungle boogie and their funkier stuff is pretty great. And they got some smooth pop hits, but Lenny Kravitz, I don't get it all. I can't imagine that he should be in the rock and roll hall of fame, but I also don't imagine that he'll not get in. So what do you think about Lenny Kravitz? Um, I saw him at the bottom line right before the first record came out and I was blown away. And to this day, I still love let love rule. That's it. Since then, he's all he's done was rip off other artists. He's he's written songs around Beatle chords, around OJ's chords, around Stevie Wonder chords, around Jimi Hendrix chords. He's the opposite of influential. He's just a sponge and hasn't done anything <laughs> original in his in his career. So it's a big no, absolutely big no. And I love the first record. You know, I saw Melissa Etheridge right as she was releasing her first album at the bottom line in New York. And boy, what a show. I mean, that was, she was, uh, I think one of her songs is I'm on fire. No, I don't know. But she was really, really good. Um, Michael, what do you think about Lenny Kravitz? I already said, move on. Uh, oh, okay. Sinead O'Connor then. Oh, no, let me, no, I, you, I, skipped, no, no. I skipped one. I skipped one. Don't you have a set up joke? No, I, you know, talk about Wonderwall or something like that. Oasis. What about Oasis? No, 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 no. What's the story? Morning Glory has is a great record. Um, and, yeah. and, and I, I still listen to it. I think it's fantastic. Everything, the, the record before their debut and everything since is just a rewrite of Morning Glory, like a, a, a poor rewrite of Morning Glory. They haven't done anything at all except Morning Glory. I, I just don't, I, I don't get that either. So. They will absolutely get in, but I don't think they deserve to either. It's all about what's the story, Morning Glory, for sure. That is a towering achievement. It's a great album and massive seller, and it deserves to be honored. But the band is, you know, and none of their solo stuff makes me want to embrace them more either. So Because it you know, sounds just like all the other stuff. Yeah, it does, the solo exactly. stuff is no different than their stuff. It's just... You know, I do not want what I haven't got, and I have not yeah. got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There you go, Sperling. Sorry about that. Wow, you're stepping on my punchline. No, just kidding. I, I had nothing for Sinead O'Connor other than uh, nothing compares to this next artist, uh, Sinead O'Connor. So should she be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Michael, you go first on this one. You know, I actually think she does. She has a very spotty career. Uh, the Line and the Cobra is, I think, a really good album. And then uh, the, the, the big album, I Do Not Want One I Haven't Got, which I don't like as much as Line and the Cobra. There's like black mopeds and it fades a little bit at the end but the stuff on it is so good she has a really compelling voice and i've always found something of interest to her her gospel ep i quite like i think that's just a lovely album with uh 
This Is To Mother You, I think is just a gorgeous song. And I think as a performer, she was often really great. And it doesn't get much more rock and roll than ripping up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. Uh, So she lived the rock and roll life. She had a troubled life with health issues, mental health issues, like so many other rock and rollers who dealt with drugs or health. Uh, it, It does feel like a little bit like promise unfulfilled. I always wanted more great music for her. She never gave me as much as I wanted. Uh, but I, I, my heart says yes, even if my head might lean towards, uh. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on all of that. But I'll add that um, I kind of gave up after the Am I Not the Same Girl, the, the big band swing record. And then I listened to nothing. Mm. And talking yeah. to a friend of mine who's a big fan and who followed her career right till the very end, he, he said, um, listen to Universal Mother. And I did. And I thought it was pretty terrific. So, you know, maybe there there needs to be a reevaluation on my part. I haven't gotten to the rest of the record. Someone else said her reggae record was 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 also pretty good. So I I, I certainly don't mind if she gets in. Well, this next artist uh, does not want he wants you to stop using the word rock star for everything. Okay, and that is because he is a rock star. That's how little I know about Ozzy Osbourne's career. Oh, we, he, there was a commercial. There was some oh. commercial last year during the Super Bowl where all these rock stars oh, were saying, "Don't Lord. keep okay. using the word rock star." And then they they cut to Ozzy Osbourne, and he's in the in a cubicle. He's like, I'm All Oswald. Right. I knew him. So a Super you know, Bowl like, ad reference, was... not a music reference. Um, I would have thought he deserved to be in there for Black no. Sabbath, even though I know nothing about heavy metal. And I assumed his solo career was just more of the same and didn't really matter. But apparently I'm wrong. So talk, talk to me. Black Sabbath is in, right? Or, or I'm are sure they, they not? are. Yeah. Okay. I, all right. I'm, so, I'm, so... I'm just saying, I thought that would be the end of it for him. But apparently he's just as important as a solo act. That's what some people were saying. I think Black Sabbath. I, I hope Black Sabbath is in because I, I think they deserve to be in. Talk about influential. Um, I like Ozzy. I like Ozzy's solo career, um, but it's again there's a there's a kind of sameness to it. Um, the first solo record was amazing because he came out of Black Sabbath and put out this record that was as good, if not better, than some of the later Sabbath records. But I mean, I don't see why he needs to get in as a solo act. There's just, I don't think there's anything musically groundbreaking. It's just more of the same. Well, they, Black Sabbath is in the uh, yeah, so, yeah, Rock and so Roll Hall of Fame as of 2006. And by the way, Boys to Men's album came out in 1991, uh, the year after Mariah Carey made her debut in 1990. So they are contemporaries. Okay. What about Sade? She's a real smooth operator. Sade got a, uh, a couple of laughs from um, some of my blogger colleagues. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I love those records. I really do. Um, I, I, again, I just don't, I just don't see it. I, 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 my argument would be, which I, I kind of wanted to bring this up anyway, but all the people that are against this list right? This, these, these new nominees, who would we nominate then? Right? Like if it's not these people, who's still waiting to get in? And so a couple of names that were thrown about were Warren Zevon, the monkeys, um, you know, but, but then you have to really think hard about who's left. And that's sort of what this 
this year's, you know, class seems like. Like people couldn't come up with anybody. And I love Chardet's records. I really do. But again, the the career kind of stopped. Those records don't sound much different from each other, although they do have their own style. Um, I don't mind if she's in, but I, I just don't see, based on the original criteria, how she could be. To me, this is the one name on the list that I absolutely think should be in. I really think she knows who she is. She knows what her, you know, you don't have to change your styles all throughout your career. You know who you are and what you are. You do it really well. She's she's pretty unique, I think. She has a very particular style and she just goes off to her island and she comes back every five or 10 years and gives us some more music and then she slips away again enigmatically. I just, uh, I just think but she's a, a, a wonderful stopped. talent. Right? I mean, what was well, the last time she, she put she, out new music due. and then slipped back to her island? She's old. Not everybody wants to do it. You know, she did it from 1984 to 2010. So that is 26 years. Did she put out records in 2010? Wow. I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, Soldier didn't of Love. Soldier of Love. Okay. So we're just about due for a new one. It's Lover's Rock was 2000. Soldier of Love was 2010. Love Deluxe was 92. That's really when it started. You had four albums pretty quickly together. All great. Then Lover's Rock right. was eight year. And then 10 years for Soldier of Love. So we're due. But you know, she's. Uh, I think she's. I think she's a talent. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I and I like I said, I love the records. I just I'm not sold on whether she belongs. But okay. And I would tell you this next artist, but I I have to call Sade and let her know that hey man, she's behind. <laughs> she she's due for you know TikTok deadline. Uh, so this next artist, a tribe called Quest. I think they're one of the most influential hip hop acts out there. They're cited by so many R&B acts as well. Uh, um, so if there had to be a, another, you know, this year's hip hop, I would take them over Eric B and Rakeem. So, yes. Uh, yeah, they would be my first, probably even my first choice, of maybe even ahead of Charday. Um, they are uh, hugely important. Uh, they, had, they have six albums, and they did five albums pretty close together from 19, in the 90s was where they did it. But then they came back, you know, 18 years later, they did it again and delivered another really, really good album in 2016. We got it, for, we got it from here. Thank you for your service. Uh, but boy, those albums, uh, they're just terrific. It's a great body of work, hugely influential. Uh, they didn't, you know, wear, them, wear their welcome out, and they showed they could keep doing it. Uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. You know, burning bright and fast is cool. I don't mind that they didn't record music for 30 years. You know, they got an eight, nine year period where they did all their great work. That's where, that's how most artists are. Most people do their great work in a 10 or 15 year span. Directors, musicians, novelists, playwrights, you don't, painters, you don't just create great work for 40 years unless... You're, you know, bloody Paul McCartney or Picasso or Bob Dylan or something. It's pretty rare that you're doing great work for decades. They did their great work and then they said goodbye. And it's, it's really great. So I really hope they get in. If you look at the fan vote, everybody I want is in the bottom. None, they're all in the bottom. Charday, A Tribe Called Quest, Eric B and Rakim. Uh, it's just, oh, you know, the only ones I would vote for, not on there, not on there a lot. Cool and the Gang and Sinead O'Connor, none of them are in the top, you know, they're all in the bottom half of the list. So the fans are pushing for, you know, whatever, Cher, Foreigner, I believe. So uh, we'll see what happens. But I would be shocked if A Tribe Called Quest didn't get in. And I'll be shocked if people don't go visit Burningwood. 
It's burnwoodtonight.blogspot.com, and that's B-U-R-N-W-O-O-D-T-O-N-I-T-E.blogspot.com. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, But we really appreciate it. And what are you listening to today? Before I go peek at the yeah. list that you keep. Uh, today, I, I listen to some Easy Beats because I, I love the Easy Beats. Um, I put on uh, the Drifter's Golden Hits because I have this great remaster by Kevin Gray that that just you know explodes out of the speakers um i think i'm going to listen to john cleary in a little while and um maybe the replacements i've been on a replacements kick so got a few more of those on the on deck well uh sal as always it's a pleasure to speak with you we will place a link to all of your work uh in our show notes thank you for taking the time to join us thank you for asking i enjoy it well, that was great of Sal to stop by. I'd like to say two things. First of all, he is the Richard Lewis of music bloggers. He's so, he's, you know, Richard Lewis always oh, angsty. And so Sal was texting me. He wanted to apologize to you, Sperling, uh, because he corrected you about Peter Frampton saying Peter Frampton did not record on a David Bowie album. He just oh. toured with him. He said, it's not my show. I shouldn't have corrected him. I'm like, no, we want, we don't, you're on because you're an expert. We actually want yeah. you on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so absolutely. We always want people to let us know if we get a mistake. If we hadn't figured that out, while it happened and we found out later, we would have mentioned at the top of the show next week. So we don't like to put out inaccurate info. We always are happy and willing to correct ourselves. So keep those phone calls and letters coming. When it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Sal and I were down on a lot of people. I think really the attitude is we want it to be special. There are not 10 or 15 people every year coming new to the music scene who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So once you've caught up with the big past, you, maybe you should limit the number of people you're bringing on because it really should be the absolute best of the best. It shouldn't just be, oh, yeah, they're good. I like them. You know, it really. Yeah, I mean, mean, I think, though, mm-hmm. there are there are like front page obituaries and there are, you know, the obituary section obituaries. And Sinead O'Connor was a front page obituary, not just because she died before, you know, she died young. And, but also, you know, Sade huge impact now she i think would probably be an obituary section obituary. oh yeah and mariah carey will be on the front page of a newspaper and she's one of the biggest artists of all time and if you go to the rock and roll hall of fame you should expect to see costumes from a mariah carey or something from a music video you should see expect to see her achievements about the string of number one songs one of the biggest christmas hits of all time that doesn't mean she as an individual artist should be in that particular section of the hall the hall celebrates all of rock history the one hit wonders the big popular successes uh and so you cover everybody in that way foreigner mariah carey mary j blige they're going to be represented and celebrated but does your body of work deserve to make you in the hall that's where we want to be a little more strict i think we're just like don't let everybody in then it's not a club (laughs) that's all you know and but they all speaking of obituaries yeah, there's a you know a few people on this list who are a lot of them oh, are still alive God. and ready I, to enjoy it. I had to open my big mouth. The <laughs> second I do, people die immediately. Unbelievable. Yes. Bob Edwards, for many people, the voice of NPR, died at 76. He joined National Public Radio in 1974 and co-hosted All Things Considered for the next five years. Then he led the spin-off Morning Edition. Yes, even NPR builds franchises and spinoffs, and I guess what we'd call the NPR-verse. 
Edwards hosted Morning Edition for roughly the next 25 years. His co-host Susan Stamberg called him the voice we wake up to for a quarter of a century, which just about says it all. Edwards was dumped by NPR in 2004, which led to a national outcry, but did not lead to his reinstatement. He was especially annoyed that they fired him after 24 and a half years. Couldn't they have waited another six months? He went on to host another show on Sirius XM for another decade. Bob Edwards, dead at 76. Yeah, it was actually a pretty good impersonation. <laughs> Not of him, but just of NPR in general. And then there's Randy yes. Sparks. You've never heard of him. Have you heard of the new Christy Minstrels? It might ring a bell. That does Maybe ring a bell. No. Yeah, they were huge in the, in, the, in the 60s. The new Christy Minstrels, by the way, are named after a minstrel show from the 1840s, which was one of the places that really popularized the music of Stephen Foster, like, you know, Swanee River and all that stuff. But Randy Sparks was the founder of the new Christy Minstrels, and he died at 90. During the folk revival of the late 50s and early 60s, his group, the new Christy Minstrels, were unavoidable. They were big with members ranging uh, in total from 10 to 14, with a constant rotating cast of talent as people left to form other groups or just didn't want to tour. Their debut album won a Grammy and stayed on the charts for two years. They were a fixture on the Andy Williams show on one network and Hootenanny on another for like two years. Then they got their own show with Ford, the car company, as a sponsor. Sparks launched a side group called the Back Porch Majority. He really loved promoting talent. He also had a nightclub in LA called the Lead Betters after Lead Belly. Uh, he sold his rights to the group for the princely sum of $2.5 million in 1964. That was real money then. And focused on his solo work, the nightclub, and other endeavors. He also began a pretty bold 30 year collaboration with Burl Ives. This was when Burl Ives had just coming out of the blacklist uh, and also testifying before the House and American Activities Committee, which made him persona non grata among Pete Seeger and a lot of other folky people. So partnering with him was not an obvious su- ticket to success, but he did that for the next 30 years, even sometimes ap- er- acting as his opening performer. He took the band back over in the 2000s uh, somehow and toured sporadically right up until a short time ago. I think COVID stopped it, and then he just got too old. By the way, the acts he nurtured as part of this group and Backport's majority and his nightclub are legion. Just a few of them include John Denver, Kenny Rogers, Kim Carnes, Gene Clark of the Birds, Barry McGuire of Eve of Destruction, and Steve Martin, just to name a few. Randy Sparks, dead at 90. A very interesting career. Well, and uh, it's been a very interesting show. I'm glad Sal stopped by. I mean, I have to say, if I was up for, you know, uh, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I, I wouldn't want him to be my voter because I wouldn't <laughs> get in. Also, because I'm not a musician, he wouldn't vote me in. So that would probably be, you know, part of, part of the reason. Also because of, you know, Peter Frampton. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, in any case, if you want to find out who is going to be on next week's episode, tune in. In fact, you can subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find our show there. Uh, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode. Links to Sal Nunziato's work can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. We're going to place uh, links to... Now, his, his, his uh, blog is Burning Wood Tonight, but it is Burn Wood Tonight. Don't, don't, don't the, spell out the address. We got a link in our show notes. It's called, if you search, search for Sal Nunziato, you'll find him or Burning Wood. It's called Burning okay. Wood. 
Okay. Well, that information will be on our website, showbizsandbox.com, along with those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Give us a call or reach out to us on twitter.com at showbizsandbox is our handle or facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like us on Facebook. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. Their new album is out next week. So get ready. Actually, or is it this week? It's this week. Their new album is out this week. And actually, I was invited to a live set or some kind of live listening album with them in Los Angeles. I might go. I might actually reach out to the publicist and see if I can get 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 a ticket to that. In any case, uh, check them out. Whoismgmt.com because their album comes out this week. Michael Gills can be found online and every week he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? Well, I went to newchristyminstrels.com and they have a website and it still says Randy Sparks at the top. But I did Google just Sal Nunziato and the first hit there is true stories from a former undercover ATF agent. I don't think the first line is Sal Nunziato never existed. So that's kind of hilarious. So actually, if you search for burning wood, you get a lot of websites showing you how to set wood on fire. So you really have to look, go for our link or search for Sal Nunziato burning wood. That takes you right to his blog. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, you know what? Uh, If you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 